Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Skip Podcast, the podcast dedicated to help you get ahead in your tech careers. This episode is focused on a really timely topic. This is the beginning of the year. A lot of you that are listening are coming back from the break and thinking through what's next, what are the right career transitions to make, should I stay, should I go? And the first couple of episodes that we put together were really focused on me walking through frameworks and frequently asked questions. But this time, I'm actually devoting this podcast to working with a group of head of products, chief product officers across the industry who can join me on the same topic. This group that we'll be introducing here in a second actually is part of a community that I've been building over the last two and a half years, a community dedicated to bring head of products together to discuss challenges that include career transitions. And so I thought of no better group to talk about career transitions, frequently asked questions, frameworks, and just how to manage than the four ladies that you'll be meeting soon. So sit back, enjoy this episode devoted to career transitions. I am very excited to welcome everyone to the Skip Podcast. This is one of our first episodes, and I couldn't be more delighted to have this topic and this group of people together. So I'll I'll start with Brianna. Brianna joins us as head of product at both ClickUp and SnapDocs. And Brianna, Monday is your first day back at work. Is that right? Yes, I just had my first baby three months ago, which is crazy. And so going back from maternity leave on Monday, everyone wish me luck. <laughs> oh my gosh. You're going to do great. Yeah. Well, Brianna is the counter case to all of my career advice. I always tell people that, hey, CPOs only last a couple of years and she was at SnapDocs for five years. And then I told people that, well, boy, if you're about, if you're expecting, that's a, it's, it's a, CPOs and head of products are very, very intense jobs. You really, really want to be very thoughtful. And and then she took that job and then three months later went on leave and just continues to sort of buck the trend. And and I think everyone will be really excited to hear her perspective on career and job. Anika Gupta also is joining us. She's a head of product and CPO at Rubric. And prior was president at LiveRamp. And again, bucks the trend in terms of tenure. How long were you at LiveRamp? 11 years. 11 years. So she, she, and were you joined LiveRamp when it was like you, like the company was a bit of a baby, if I recall. Yeah, it was 20 people before we had product market fit. That's amazing. And then when you left, it was how big? It was like 1500 people and we were a public (laughs) company for, had been a public company for three years. The thing I love about Annika is beyond just being a great executive and head of product, she also does a ton of giving and, and in fact, teaches a, a product management class at Stanford, if I recall. Is that in its, it's coming up on its second term? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. We're starting it in a couple of weeks. So it's super exciting. Yeah. And, and I think that Annika has not only that sort of product management lens, but has also been broader in operations. And so I think has a lot, a lot of interesting ideas to share about career transitions, not just for product and product managers. Shirley Lynn joins us as CPO at Divi Homes and prior was at Airbnb. Shirley, welcome. Thanks so much. Excited to be here. Shirley, tell us like, what was, what's the difference between Airbnb and Divi Homes in terms of like cultures? How does that transition take place? 
Yeah, great question. Well, I was at Airbnb just about five years. And, you know, I think my role there was very much driving products from zero to one a couple of times. So when I started, I joined starting a product for our customer service org, building out tools for our almost 8,000 agents around the world working in 12 languages. And then moved on to kickstart financial products for Airbnb, working on host capital products and insurance products. And my last gig was really overseeing the global super host program for our hosts. And so, you know, I think my role there was really trying to define what products would really transform our business and really help amplify the dynamics that drive marketplace environments. And I think that role is very different than the role that I have now as CPO at Dibby Homes, where really it's my first time overseeing product and design holistically and thinking kind of on a broad base level what we want to invest in to really transform a business. And so moving from managing a team and really incubating a product within a broader ecosystem to overseeing what we want to transform at the company level, that, that's been a big shift and been a really rewarding one. And surely you've got this interesting background that you've talked to me about, about the fact that you actually started out not in, and as a tech career, but more like a financial analyst and that how, how much that's actually impacted your ability to sort of connect the business problems, the operating problems and the technology problems. And so I think that that blend is going to be a great fit for today's conversation. And I know that diversity is something that we care a lot about and different movies, different cultures really help drive career. And then we're joined by Annie Pearl. Annie is a CPO at Calendly before a CPO at Glassdoor. Again, all of these folks buck my trends. If I always said, told Annie, like you do CPO once, and then you're exhausted, and then you don't do it again. And the next thing I knew, she was CPO accountantly after leaving Glassdoor. So welcome, Annie. I know you're, you're a little under the weather, but I appreciate you powering through you and hopefully feeling a little bit better this morning. Great to be here. So before we get started on sort of the, the question of the day that we wanted to work through is just how, how do product managers work and, and, and tech executives work through transitions? And it's a broad topic and we'll, we'll get into the details, but the five of us know each other because we are part of a, a community that we've been working on for now almost two years. I think we pulled this thing together. We call it the Skip Community for CPOs. And what we started doing about two years ago is coming together to just sort of trade notes and talk about what are the challenges around being number one in a, in a growth company in product management. And I started the skip with this idea that high potential folks don't have all the tools and resources to get ahead. And that's why I started the newsletter. And that's why I started this community for head of products and why we're launching this podcast. And what I started hearing was that as a four-year CPO at Credit Karma, there were a lot of folks that were hitting the same exact challenges. And so I met a number of you, I think, and I, the questions that you asked were the same ones that the other person in the room had. And so I thought, wouldn't it be great if we all got in a room and talked about it? And we started the community. And I think the hardest part about this community is not scaling it, but building this sort of trust and making sure that we can be open and authentic with each other. And this last year, we've seen a little bit of growth to the community. And in fact, in January, we, we added our 23rd member. So we have 23 head of products. And some of the folks are, are active, like all four of you are active in head of product roles. Some of them have moved on to second roles or potentially starting companies or looking for the next gig, but it's a great community. And we started out thinking through, well, what are the kinds of topics that as a community we want to talk to others about? And this was the first one. So 
I'm excited about the group that we've created. I'm curious if any of you have thoughts around what the last couple of years have been and what the community means and, and maybe how we put it together, just as other people are thinking through, wouldn't it? I would love to be in a community like this. Any, any thoughts on how that might be counsel that we can give others? I think a big part of it for me was making sure that we all connected on a personal level. I remember this group was actually one of the first I told was pregnant, which was crazy. Like I was like, five weeks pregnant and I told everyone and just because I knew I was going through this job transition, I felt open sharing that with people and wanted to get the advice. So one, connecting on a personal level, but it's one, just helpful to hear other people's challenges. You're not alone. You can feel like you're on an island alone in this role. And then also just getting these like nuggets of advice that kind of stay with you forever has been awesome. So that that's, that's what it's meant to me. Just to build on that a little bit, I think you kind of hit on it, Brianna, but trust at the core of the group, so important. The head of product of a CPO role, it can be very lonely. You have a lot of pressure on you. The best companies are product-led companies. And so being able to be vulnerable and open up about the challenges you're facing starts because you have created an environment where there's a lot of trust and that's at the core. And then once you open up and you're vulnerable, you start to identify all these common patterns. And then once you've identified all the common patterns, then you can start to sort of help each other figure out how to work through things. So I think any great community like this starts with that trust. And I think that came from starting with a very small group, making sure that that kind of core group had really great trust. And then over time have built it up and found ways to scale it that maintains that trust. But it all started from having that from the beginning. Yeah, I think that what I've realized is that And I felt like this when I was going through my experience at Credit Karma is that these challenges are hard and there's no playbook and you feel quite alone and you're very busy. (laughs) And so you could solve, if you took one of those things away, you could probably be okay, right? If you were a little bit less busy, you could have more time to find folks. And if it wasn't quite as challenging of a job, you wouldn't need those resources. But the combination was quite challenging. And I felt like I think for any executive and any kind of high potential person that is listening, I think that finding ways to not feel alone is key. And I think that maybe corporate America and corporations generally assume that the companies will find those resources for you. Oh, it's your manager. Oh, it's the HR consultant or the executive coach. And the frank truth is that it's just very, very hard to not feel alone, even with the resources the company offers. And so that's what communities like this, and I hope other skip communities would would definitely offer for folks. But the hardest part, and I think all of us have felt this, is that there's no shortage of people that want to be part of our community or part of any community. But what Annie, you said is so true. It's scale is the enemy of trust. And so, you know, if you you go into a room and there's 200 people and all of you that are going to a conference and you don't know anyone, I mean, you're not going to open up and talk to people about your biggest challenges or your insights. And yet that's where you really find that value and that authenticity. And so this is a big experiment that we're running and we'll keep everyone in, in posted. But I couldn't be more delighted that we found found each other and, and we are doing great helping and learning from each other. And, and, and that's a great segue into our first topic, which is really around career transitions. And maybe my my question is, there's going to be a ton of information out there of things that, you know, hey, if you're looking for a new gig, this is what you should do. This is how you should think about it. But I want you to think back around career errors, you know, that, you know, when people make mistakes, 
And if you think back and think of an example of, boy, some, even if you yourself has made a mistake or someone that you've known and trusted or worked for you or worked around you made a career error, when was making a decision, when did it backfire? When does staying maybe a good thing versus a bad thing or leaving turn out to be premature or a bad choice? What can we learn from mistakes that people made? Shirley, do you have thoughts on this? Yeah, I think back to when I transitioned from Airbnb and was thinking about taking on the next role. Rather than think of it as an error, I actually think about it more in terms of what are the the goals and the framework in which I think about what's fulfilling about a job. So for example, for myself personally, there had to be a really meaningful mission. I love that about Airbnb. It really inspired me every day to do my best work. And that was really important for me. Growth opportunities. I kind of had clarity around what I wanted to grow in, in terms of For example, setting vision and strategy at the company level. I had criteria in terms of the team, people that I wanted to work with, smart people to learn from, kind people that I would enjoy being with every day. And when I approach it, I think about, well, are all these attributes present in my day-to-day job? And over time, I find that these attributes evolve. I think the ratio of them change. And when you get to a point where that no longer exists in the in the structure or framework that you hope for in your current job, that's like a good time to think about a job transition, a good time to kind of clarify, what do I want next? What attributes do I want in my next role? And how do I go about doing some research and canvassing opportunities out there? And so I think that's the approach that I take. I think it helps prevent errors in job transitions because you're really clear and what you're looking for and what would help you do your best work and bring you joy every day. And so that's a little bit about how I think about job transitions. I've had people that come to to me, and I think that probably all of us have had this, which is, this place is so dysfunctional. Oh my God, look at all these problems. This place isn't what it used to be. I got to get the heck out of here. Dysfunction is killing me. And and that dysfunction wasn't actually in your narrative, Shirley. You didn't say, keep going until the place is no longer clean, or you had a framework in mind. I'm curious as to how you should counsel folks that feel like the place isn't like it used to be. Yeah, Annika, I'll go take ahead. that one. So, yeah, I mean, I went through that multiple times because I was at LiveRamp for 11 years. And when you're at a company and see it from going from 20 people to 1,500 people, plus we were a startup that got acquired by a much larger company. So we went through a lot of cultural transitions as part of growing and scaling and also getting acquired. And I got great advice at one point that was like, don't leave because you're frustrated. And honestly, like, having had that longevity of being somewhere for 11 years, it was actually the point at where I was frustrated, where I worked through those frustrations and helped solve those problems where I had the greatest growth, both in terms of my title and getting responsibility, but also just from a personal level and having to figure out a way through those difficult times. And so when I talk to people about their transition, I really try to advise people, don't leave because you're frustrated, really try to work through that. And at some point, You have to say, okay, I'm going to cut my losses and and go somewhere else because potentially it's a toxic culture or potentially you're not seeing growth and learning. But often I I find that that growth and learning really can come from those times that are are difficult and those times where you're really challenged to, to figure out how to help the company, not just help yourself, but help the company work through a challenging, a challenging point of time. I love that, Annika. I I heard similar advice that resonated with just, you don't want to run away from something, you want to run towards something. 
And I think running away from something and taking any job that that's ripe for a disaster, I say, but I love that analogy. I also think what company doesn't have its fair share of dysfunction? <laughs> I don't know if I've been at one that that hasn't been dysfunctional every couple of cycles. And so I think the question is, is it a dysfunction that you can learn from and that you can work through? Or have you put enough time and effort into it that you realize like, hey, this is no longer the place for me. This no longer is a two-way partnership. It's time to kind of move on. Don't run away, run towards. The, the only counter to that that I'll say is if you feel like you're solving the same dysfunction over and over again, and you're exhausted by that, I think it's okay to say, all right, I'm no longer, Annika, to your point, learning something new, tackling a new challenge, then I think it's okay to run away. <laughs> yeah, I love the, I love that change is needed. I think the definition of an insanity is doing the same thing over and expecting different <laughs> results. But, but I'd also say that the closer you get to the top, the more you see the dysfunction. Yeah. And I think that when you're earlier in your career, maybe the dysfunction exists. It's just not in the rooms that you're frequenting. And then all of a sudden, you get closer to the top, and the dysfunction's always been there. It's just you're becoming more senior, and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that this is how things are being done. It didn't used to look like that. And it's like, no, it actually always looked like this. But <laughs> you just didn't know or notice, or you weren't senior enough to be told. And I think that this advice that we're giving of like, hey, make sure you look at your own growth rate, your own framework, your own expectations, and that sometimes dysfunction is a feature, not a bug, but not always, I think is, is, is terrific advice. You know, any Maybe I'll ask this question around, especially since you had so much experience in, in both running, being a head of product and then running a people product as well with Glassdoor. I think there's always this question that people ask me, which is, I'm a total top performer, but I got turned down from a company. And in the process of being turned down, they told me, they gave me some phony story and, the, and I was like, oh, well, what's a funny story? And the funny story they gave me was, it's not you, it's us. It's like, we don't have the role. You are amazing. Please, we want to keep you in touch, but we don't have the position. It doesn't come out to be a fit. And it happens more with sort of managers and more senior folks. And, and I've sometimes shared with them that there may be some truth to that. And so I'm curious as to, is, as an employer, do good employers pass on good people? Or is it mostly good people that always find a space for? No, I have passed on great people. But usually I think that's because I know that the role itself just isn't big enough or exactly what that person wants to do next. And I can't do anything about that. And so I know I'd bring them in selfishly because I know they're great and I want to make it work, but I probably wouldn't be setting them up for success. And usually it's a scope constraint and or not exactly what they want to do next. And so, but I think you're really transparent about that, right? So I think if you're getting some hand wavy, it's not you, it's it's me without a lot of context, that it's probably the, it is you. <laughs> but I think if through the interview process, you've had a lot of open dialogue around what the person wants and what the role is and what the scope is. And then at the end, you sort of say, look, this isn't exactly what you want. And this is the role. And like, therefore, this isn't going to work. So I have had those scenarios. I think the other sort of maybe I'll flip it a little bit to just to say, when you pass on a job, I think it's often really important to kind of leave that door open and make sure you keep the relationship intact because you just kind of never know what future opportunities 
could arise with that manager or the employer. I recently hired a head of product who turned down my offer two years ago. The timing wasn't right at the time. And we stayed in touch and, and connected every six months. And here we are again. And the timing is right now. So I'd also say in addition to sort of thinking about employer rejecting candidate as you're a candidate and you're rejecting an employer, always making sure you leave on a really positive note and you keep the door open will really just create optionality later on down the line as well. Yeah, I would say that what's funny is that both Shirley and Annie, I think, are are are, are two folks that I've unsuccessfully recruited in past <laughs> lives, and I was so impressed with them. Though they turned me down, I I, I, I maintain the relationship. So I think people. People don't come and go, but companies and opportunities do. And I think that that's great. And I actually think that what I'm hearing from you, Annie, is that a great company would want to ensure that the person they're hiring is set up for success, not just talent collecting. Because yes, when exactly. you know the market shifts like it has in this past year, you want to make sure that the people that you've hired are well-positioned. And, and you'd almost rather say no to good people to ensure that they're succeeding yes. than build a reputation as an employer that we can't make good people succeed. And, and that discipline, I think, is warranted. But you, can, you have to kind of read it, I think, in the conversations mm-hmm. you're having. It's not like you just can't look at the recruiter email and decipher what's being said. And so that sometimes maybe a good question is that how much can, can someone go and ask why? What, what was the reason behind the decision not to present an offer? Companies are busy. The individuals put a bunch of time in. What's permissible? Like as an employer, like, you know, or as a, as a counselor, like, do you, do you think that all individuals can kind of go back to the hiring manager and will all hiring managers respond? Or how do you, how do you get to know what's the ground truth as to why you didn't end up working out? I have a mixed thoughts on this. Every time that I feel like I have been asked to provide really clear feedback and then provided the clear feedback, it doesn't feel like it's been met necessarily with a lot of openness. And like the outcome is is never satisfying, right, for the candidate. And so I think you have to be really clear as the candidate, what are you trying to get out of this and know that either either A, the feedback being given to you is probably going to be sugarcoated, in which case it's not going to be all that valuable, or B, you have to be willing to take the hard truth and actually internalize it and do something about it. But I think people kind of get stuck in the middle where they want to hear an answer that makes them feel good. But then if they actually get the real truth, I think it's very hard for them to internalize and, and, and learn from. So yeah, I don't know. I kind of have some mixed, mixed emotions about it. Yeah, I think a bad reason as a candidate to go ask for the feedback is to try to refute that feedback and convince the hiring manager that you're actually a good fit. So if you're actually looking for the feedback, you have to be willing to accept that feedback and appreciate it just like you would in a workplace environment, because otherwise it's not, it doesn't actually end up helping that relationship on an ongoing basis. I've learned to do something maybe to set the stage a bit is I asked the candidate for feedback on our process and on me as a hiring manager first. And their answer actually gives me a good sense for whether they want to actually hear feedback or or whether they just want a little bit more clarity on why it was a no. And so that's a little trick that I do, but it really helps set the stage for, are they truly open? Do they want to grow? Or is there this opportunity to get a little bit more clarity and closure? And I find that most folks just want a little bit more closure, not real feedback. So for candidates out there, I think there's a real opportunity. I think hiring managers are really open to providing real feedback, but maybe it's just asking for it. I do think that leveraging the recruiter is a safe way to get feedback and closure. If you 
don't want feel ready to accept the feedback with the hiring manager. That's why it's great to keep a good relationship with the recruiter, because if it does end up being the situation like Annie talked about, where it was the role, that recruiter now also has you in mind, and it's their full-time role to think about you for future opportunities. And so you get that nice combination of closure plus them remembering you in the future. Yeah, maybe in some ways, if company is very reluctant, if they're like, you're great, We just don't have the position, but we definitively want to invest in a potential future role with you. Believe us, but you can't get the hiring manager to sort of communicate with you, or you can't get the recruiter to give you some more clarity. It's probably code for maybe that's not actually what's being said, but I I know that in one case, I think in one of the companies I sent someone over that this was the case and the, the, the timing wasn't right. And then the hiring manager's on the phone like the next hour and very much trying to communicate, look, here's the things that we just don't feel great about at this moment for our system situation. And this like fit and we don't have the role, I think it's very common right now. All, across all four of your companies are, are really healthy and doing great. But you're probably changing almost on a quarterly basis, which positions are available and who's in the seats, et cetera. And so that's like legitimate challenge. And for you to just hire blindly, knowing that they'll always business is just bad hygiene and none of your companies are going to want to do that. So I'm really with you on that point. And then I think when it comes to the feedback, this fits into the sometimes perception is reality. So what you can gain is it's not... I am not good at this skill, but it's more that somehow in the interview process, I did not come across as good as this skill. That is the fact. And that is the thing to work on, not that your skill is broken. It's somehow there's a disconnect. And I think that's a lot of what we'll we'll talk about in the next section here is just how to make sure that you're coming across and interviewing in a way that that that's that's thoughtful and meaningful. But Maybe my last question is we think through kind of broad strokes around how do you make these transitions? I can't help but think that all four of you have been on leave this last year with with new members of the family and congratulations on that. And, and I think that probably the hardest question for me to answer is this question that comes to me with folks that are mid, midstream in career and they're either currently expecting or likely going to have in the next 12 months some type of addition to the family. And the question is like, what's the... What's the right advice here? Should should I? Everyone always says like I'd rather stay than go because transitions and increasing family and 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 working as a, a new parent is really really tough. But I'm curious: is that always the advice? What is your advice that you give all of you who've lived through this and on an individual basis? I'd love to hear. Maybe Brianna, because you know you're just coming off of leave and you made a transition. You're you're a great counterexample to the conventional wisdom. What, what's your take on this? Yeah, I mean, I just went through this. I found out I was pregnant when I was going through the interview process and starting to think about a job transition, and so I. Had to answer this exact question. And what it came down to for me and what my advice would be for people is you have to think about the impact waiting will have on your career trajectory. So if I could guarantee staying and transitioning led to the exact same career trajectory, I'd stay. Like it's more comfortable. You maybe feel more comfortable taking a longer leave. You know the team. But for me, and I imagine frequently, an opportunity comes up that could accelerate your career. I personally felt like I would be a year and a half to two years 
behind in my career if I stayed versus leaving. And so I decided, you know what, I'm going to make that transition. It was really important to me, though, that I set the right expectations with my new employer. Before I accepted the offer, I told them that I was pregnant. I made sure that I'd be able to get the full leave. A lot of companies say that you have to be somewhere for a year before you can get the full leave. And I was like, no, I've been working my ass off for decades. I want the full leave that I can take with my daughter. So you have to negotiate that, set the expectations up front. And then I got tons of advice actually from all the women on this call around, okay, I just have six months in this head of product role. Like what problems should I prioritize first versus wait to take when I come back. So my advice is you can do it. Like you can do anything and you should really think about the impact it's gonna have on your career trajectory and if you're willing to sacrifice any impact on it. I have a similar experience in that, like I was doing my job search when I was trying to get pregnant. So I didn't know like at what point that would happen, but I felt similarly where I had been with LiveRamp for 11 years and I we were talking about like perception and reality of an, in interviewing. Like I knew that it was challenging because people looked at my resume and said, "Hey, you've worked at one company. You haven't. You don't. You don't have like diversity of experience." Like I had diversity of experience in many different ways, and I had to go and overcome telling that story. But I knew that if I stuck around, waited till I got pregnant then like went on leave, then came back, then tried to do my job search. Like I was talking about potential years in the role. And not only did I feel like it was bad from a career perspective to stay, but also from a motivation perspective, like I was done. Like I felt like my learning had really plateaued and I couldn't see myself being excited and motivated to work if I was staying in that role for another potentially two years while I waited it out. So and in retrospect, it was a great decision to to make the move, get settled. And you can't plan exactly when all these things are going to happen. And hopefully you, you join a company that really values you and values the talent that you're bringing to the table and will work around whatever family things that you have come up. One other thought on this, I think is in some ways kind of depends on where you are in your career. And I think it impacts kind of two elements. The first, career progression opportunities is a little bit what both of you were referring to, but then also impacts sort of how much of an impact you have on the company when you're away. So when you're earlier in your career, the time away after having the baby can have a really meaningful impact on your upward mobility, right? Just simply due to time being out of role in comparison to your peers. And then when you're more senior, the stakes just get so much higher around when you're out and what impact that actually has to the business. So I think you have to kind of assess both of those factors in terms of where are you in your career progression. And if you're earlier in your career, perhaps it's you should just stay in your role and choose to try to have have a child during that time. But you're also giving up potentially upward mobility while you're out. So I think you kind of have to think about career progression and sort of where you are in your career journey, as well as how high are the stakes of you being out of the role as you're kind of making that decision? The thing that I like about what you said is that there's no one size fits all. I think that this is one of those areas where pretty much people feel like one size fits all. It'd be crazy to make a transition while you're pregnant or you can only do one thing at one time. And I think that what's funny is that when you listen to your stories and all of you went through some degree of transition and you were in some of the most senior roles that you've ever held, 
and they you don't look back with regret. You actually think that that was a good move. But that's so non-intuitive if you took the conventional wisdom. And the thing that I love about it and and the reason why I think that this is the, the really thoughtful advice is that you know, you kind of if you at the end of the day, the person that you need to bet on is yourself. Now, Annie, to your point, that doesn't mean you should just take unreasonable risk. I think that it's just you need to assume that you got to find the right path for yourself and you need to bet on yourself and be thoughtful around when is the right time to bet on yourself based on what the challenge and situation might be. But I, I encourage everyone to be really nuanced. And that's why I think career advice is so hard. It's so tailor-made. There's no book, there's no podcast that's going to nail you to a T. And so I think a lot of what we try to do is connect people to each other. As Brianna, you said, you had to kind of talk through it with someone who's been through it and then decide what makes sense to you, right? And it's just career advice is just such a personal fit. Awesome. Before you move on, Nikhil, I just wanted to mention that it'd be remiss not to shout out the village that supports us in being able to go to work and give it 150% every day. Partners, spouses, nannies, parents that really jump in and help support as we have young children that we're caring for and families that we're supporting every day. So I do want to mention that we're not in these roles alone. I think it takes a community to, to make it all happen. I thought I had something great to add to that, <laughs> I think you covered it. I mean, I, I'm support. My husband doesn't work and he's taking care of our six month old full time. I could not do the job that I'm doing and everything else that I'm doing on the side without that, without my mom who lives 10 minutes away and without this, this group of, of amazing heads of product, chief product officers who is ready to support me at any point in time. It's amazing. Yeah, I guess I'll, I'll layer on that. It is a family decision, I guess, if you if you plan to make that yes. move. And so <laughs> that that's one one thing to think about. My husband was extremely supportive. I'm in a similar boat to you, Annika. And he allowed me to to make that transition at such a volatile time in our life. So think about it as a group decision. Yeah, I love that. And I love how personal it is for each of us. And and I think that that's why I worry that there's like these hard and fast rules that we tend to put out like oh it's on twitter it says and then and then you know all are describing like well my husband may be in a position to support me while someone else may not be in a partner situation at all and and it's just really really tough but such valuable insight to be able to at least find others to talk through this with you're not alone in making these kinds of decisions at least and almost all of the, the folks that are in that mid-level career have had to go through this, either themselves, their partners, their loved ones. Let's shift a little bit to kind of some of the more, there's so many conversations and questions that all of us get that are like real mechanical. They have like simple on the surface, but maybe more nuanced behind the scenes. Like a really, and, and often the advice is a little different depending on the level that the person's at, individual contributor, manager, executive. But like, we'll start with a real basic question I get almost every month. It's just sort of, hey, I'm, I'm decided I want to move in and, and look for another gig. Which company should I talk to? How, how, do you, how do all of you answer that question? Like, how many? Do I talk to 50? Do I talk to five? Do I wait? Like, what is the process then? And who do you go to is really the question. Maybe I'll start with Annika on this one and, and then maybe try to get all of you to time in on this. I think for this one, it really depends on where you are in your career and how much you already know about what you want from your next gig. So for me, 
when I started my job search, when I had decided that I wanted to leave LiveRamp and do something new, I started extremely broad because I didn't know what stage of company I wanted to go to, what exact role I wanted to take, what industry I wanted to be in. And I wanted to be able to explore very broadly to help get a sense of what was going to be the best fit for me. And I feel like for my career, I've been a collector of experiences. I like having lots of different kinds of experiences. And so for me, the job search and the actual process of starting really broad and talking to a lot of companies, but then very quickly deciding, okay, this is this opportunity isn't a great fit. I don't want to continue moving forward. This opportunity has something more interesting. Maybe I'll continue to explore that. And making those decisions quickly after I started broad really helped me get a lay of the land, explored many different, very diverse types of opportunities and eventually hone in on what was the right thing for me. And Nikhil gave me such great advice, which is think about not like what the, this next job, but the job after. And what are the, the aspects of what you want from this next job to help you further in your career? And that really helped guide me in thinking about, okay, what new experiences do I want to collect? What do I already have? And thinking about really focusing on getting some more different kinds of experiences, working with different types of people in a different industry. I think similarly, starting off with that framework, and Monica, to your point, you may not know what the framework is till you start to talk to people. But once you quickly hone in on what are what are you prioritizing, right? At different points in your career, it might mean you're optimizing for company stage, for industry, for work-life balance. And so once you have that kind of clear set of criteria, then you can really use that to guide your search. And so for me, in my last search, company stage was what I was optimizing for. I really wanted kind of late stage growth company because the challenges that appeared in, in those companies and, and in the role during that phase of growth were the skills that I want to acquire and the challenges I wanted to tackle. And to Annika's point, to set me up for the job after this one. And so that made, once I had that really honed in on, there's only so many companies that are in the late stage growth phase. And then you sort of start to, from there, whittle down to company fit, the product fit, is this actually the role that I want? But I think once you get really clear on that criteria, it helps you narrow in and really control the search in a much more meaningful way. I love everything said here. Maybe one thing to add that I did in my search going from Airbnb to Divi Homes is I spoke with senior leaders that I had worked with at Airbnb that had transitioned and asked them for their take, for their feedback on what I was strong at, I think what they saw as moments where I really shined or like was really enjoying the work. And it was really interesting hearing their take because I think I heard a lot of observations that I think weren't weren't super obvious to myself. And I think in those conversations too, they would say, Hey, like I actually talked to this startup or this company the other day. I think you'd really enjoy working with these founders, or I think this is totally in your wheelhouse. And so it was kind of a great way to get additional data points because I had been so heads down in my role that it was like a moment to like pick my head up a little bit and and hear from folks that I trusted and that really knew me and helped me kind of canvas what was out there. Yeah, I, I think that going broad is very valuable, especially when you don't know what really matters. But I think all three of you are sort of suggesting at some point, you need to kind of hone your search. You know, whether it's stage, some people say, I think I know it's growth stage or it's early stage or I want to go to big tech or whatever it might be. Some people are very much like, I think as I've thought about it, the thing that unlocks me is just brand. I, I just don't have, I'm not known as a brand. I haven't worked for a big brand. So a brand is something that I think is really, really important and that culls the list in some ways. But I think if you start to narrow 
I think what I'm hearing is you end up like not necessarily picking, you may think, oh, maybe it's compensation or maybe it's the manager. And this is such an important topic. One of the the early podcasts that, that I'm going to be doing is just sort of laying out what career frameworks could look like, what are the dimensions. But I also think that the conversation here is that if you don't know you get into a room with a number of opportunities, even if it's not interviewing formally, but just like coffee meetings or talking to friends at these companies. And you start to calibrate like, oh, I just, I couldn't imagine me working on that problem or working in that phase. Like, I think I'm no longer interested in that. Or you might like, go oh, tell me more. And that's like, you go home and you like, oh, this is like d- double click on this. And you kind of work it through. So so I think that that's a big part of the, the first like entry of like, I'm dipping my toe in the water. The other one is just the names of companies. I think these days we are all flooded, as I'm sure almost every listener is flooded with LinkedIn requests, emails, now wonderfully text messages of opportunities that need to be looked at today and today only. And I'm curious as to when you find yourself counseling or even when you've looked for jobs, what sources do you go at? Like, how do, where do you find these names of companies and how do you get into them? And is it okay or advisable to respond? Do great people respond and get good jobs off of inbound, like blind emails? Like how, how does this all work for, I mean, what have you seen that worked or didn't work in your experience? Brianna, maybe you, you might have some thoughts on this one. Well, I mean, if you get a blind email or LinkedIn from Rubrik, Divi Holmes, <laughs> Calendly, <laughs> Meta, ClickUp, I think you should respond to it. No, but really, if you get a great opportunity that comes through inbound and you know the company, go for it. It's awesome. It fell in your lap. But I think more often you have to go hunting or, or have some thoughtful hunting tactic. And I do think it varies by the level of seniority that you are. So I'll get a little bit just tactical because I think it's helpful to have specific things to pull from. I think when you're at the IC level, like reaching out to your friends and ex-coworkers is a phenomenal way to get in. One, because we look at referrals first before just regular applications. Also, your friend will likely get a nice bonus. So there's usually an incentive for them. So it's, you can pay it back to them. But that's a phenomenal way. There's They'll know, be able to tell you a lot about the company too and someone you trust and, and you'll get a lot more data about the company. As a manager, I think it's really helpful to follow your previous boss if you can, if they've moved on. If you're a manager, you might be looking to move into an executive or head of role and being number two is a great way to to move into that. And so if you can go somewhere with a previous manager where you already have that trust, that is a great way. It also helps your previous manager out because they're trying to grow their team and they, they know that you're a sure bet. And then as an exec, I found it really helpful to go through the venture capital network that I have and exec recruiters. I think that they're actually phenomenal partners in really hearing what you want, helping you negotiate even, helping get more, once you have your criteria that Annie talked about after going broad, helping find the companies for you, that would be good. It takes a lot of the effort out of it. So I think those are some techniques that I've used. I found ClickUp through the VC network that I'm a part of through Andreessen. They just invested in a round of funding there. I I found SnapDocs through Sequoia. So I've used that that technique quite frequently for these growth stage companies that you might not otherwise think of. Yeah, I mean, I think of doing a job search is very much 
like a sales job. You're trying to fill the top of the funnel with as many opportunities, at least to begin with, as possible. And some of those are going to be depending on, again, where you are in your career, as Brianna said, some of those are going to be the inbound opportunities that are coming at you. And some of it is going to be things that you're going out and hunting for. And part of that job too is also building awareness that amongst all the people that are out there looking for great candidates, that you're out there and you're available. For me, that was very important because when I did my job search, I hadn't done a job search in 11 years. And so, and when I'd done a job search before, I'd been right out of college. So it was a really different search. And so my tactic was talk to anyone that reached out to me because even if they didn't have the opportunity that I was looking at now, I wanted them to think of me for an opportunity that would be a good fit. And so I was out marketing myself at the same time as trying to fill my top of funnel and then really managing that pipeline all the way down to conversion. The great thing about career transition is you don't need five opportunities that are the perfect fit. You only need one. So in that way, it's different than a sales job. It's I really approached it from that mindset. It's like, it is all about sales. You're selling yourself. And maybe that sounds scary, but to me, I found that very fun and exciting. I'm curious, Annika, I don't know, how did you find Rubrik? Was that through Exec Recruiter or was that through a VC? It was through VC. So I found it through Greylock. And that was, I agree with Brianna for exact recruiting, especially if you're looking at any sort of private company or even recently public company going through the VC networks is just phenomenal as a way to find great opportunities. Yeah, I think that the disconnect that I think people feel is that they're about ready to enter into a job transition and they can tell by the name of the company, that it's a great company. And so they start with this idea that, well, I should build a list, which then is sort of based on the fact that there's a known list of companies that are named that must be high quality for me. And yet when I look back, all of my best jobs were companies that I'd never heard of before I started the job transition. So if I made a list beforehand, it clearly wouldn't have been on it. And yet my best companies were company. In fact, when I went to Credit Karma, I distinctly remember a recruiter called me and I was actually talking to them and I was super interested in another gig. And they're like, hey, you're in the system and we just want to let you know that there's this company in San Francisco and I was in Peninsula. I was like, oh, commute. And then it was like in fintech and I'm like, fintech, oh my gosh, making money. Like that's not my thing. And it's like a growth company. And I was like, well, because I happen to be in that neighborhood for another interview, I'll pop by. And that turned out to be one of my best jobs. And I would have never known. But you start realizing that it's not the company's name or it's not the domain, it's the challenges and the stage and the people and the culture and the kinds of roles that you have. So if you go with that idea that you don't actually, the best company is not even known to you, you just would would construct your sales funnel differently. Right? It would be a lot more open. You would tell people, here's the kind of thing that I think good looks like. And then you tell us, like the venture folks, they spend all their day, the recruiters, they spend all their day thinking about this. And then the other, the other story, I have some arrogance that I can pick companies now because I've known a lot of them. And I, a good friend of mine was looking for an opportunity and I was like, oh, here's this list of great companies. Your four, four of your companies were on the list and you should talk to them and we have the best ones and we know about them. And she's like, well, I have this random company that reached out on LinkedIn and I looked at it and I was like, that's eh, interesting. But like for like five reasons, it wasn't like the perfect fit. Turned out that's the role that she took. And nothing to do with the ones that I curated for her. 
And actually, the blind recruiter from LinkedIn turned out to be the right one. And so that top of funnel, like you never know, just talk to folks, go broad, I, I think is just terrific advice because you got nothing to lose. And at the end of the day, you learn something and get practice and maybe you build a relationship with some people. So I think it's only upside is what I'm sensing. Yeah. I mean, I had never heard of Rubrik before I talked to the company. So it was a similar experience and I couldn't be happier with where I landed. Yeah. And maybe that's the next question would be, that sounds like great advice, but it sounds like it's going to take a bunch of time. So then the question would be, what's the advice on folks that are working? If they're at a tough company, they're working nonstop and they're already trying to deal with capacity challenges and work-life balance. And now you're starting the year and you're like, well, I want to start looking for a gig. And the advice that I'm hearing is talk to a bunch of people. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that just sounds exhausting, let alone the process of like filling my calendar with 50 meetings. What's your advice on, do you suggest people leaving, opening up their calendar and making this their full-time sales job? Or do you, taking the other extreme, suggest that even if you're happy at your gigs, you're always talking to companies? Like, where? what's your advice within the, the sort of two ends of the spectrum? Any of you, you, you all have a perspective on this. I think it's always easier to find a job when you have a job. So from a just pure marketability standpoint, it is always tends to be easier. That said, I think that when you don't have the job, you have the luxury of time. And so I almost think you want to it almost starts back with the like, do you understand what your criteria are? And can you narrow your search quickly enough so that, you know, you aren't doing 50 conversations to just find out that, oh, no, I don't want early stage, I actually want a scaled company. So I think it a little bit depends on where you are on your journey of understanding what you're looking for and how much time do you need before you get down to the most important conversations that you're going to pour all of your time into. So I think that's one piece. I think on the question of should you kind of always be having conversations, I think, Absolutely being friendly with recruiters, referrals, sending them folks in your network, always a really smart thing to do. The one thing I think can be tricky is the minute you have that first real interview or real conversation, you're opening up a door that it's very hard to walk back from because you start to imagine yourself in a different role. And so I think just be really thoughtful that if you're going to go have like a real true inner first interview conversation that you understand why am I having this? What am I, what am I really trying to potentially that I'm not happy about my current role and, and be ready to actually do a full search. Cause I think once you open that door, you start to find yourself in a straddled world. And then back to your original question, you already have so much time sucked away by your current job. And now you're trying to do two things at once and you don't know what you're trying to optimize for. So I just be really careful that if you're going to go open the door to a real true interview process, that you, you're you really ready to take that step. I also think there's a question of how you have to ask yourself of how full or empty is your tank. It is a really big effort to embark on a job search if you want to do it well. And you're probably not going to take the first opportunity that or first conversation that you have is not going to be the one that that you end up taking. And so for me, like I found the job search very energizing because I love talking to people. I love meeting companies. It was really fun and it was a huge time commitment and it took me nine months. So I was having lots, like I was spending 10 to 20 hours a week on external conversations in addition to my job for nine months. It was a very long process, but it was also really fun. And so I found it energizing and I was able to do it while doing a very intense job. 
Whereas like sometimes I talk to other people and it's like their tank is already empty and doing this job search is not as energizing for them for a variety of reasons. And in that case, it's like if you want to give it your best and you want to be able to spend the time and energy finding the right opportunity, then you might need to actually leave and have that space for yourself so you can give your job search the justice that it deserves. Yeah, maybe the the question is then how long should you expect to be in this limbo? Because- I think maybe, Annika, you're on the one extreme, which is you like it. It's actually fun for you. I think that there are many people that are like, this is the literally worst thing I could ever do. It's You just described it as a sales job. And that's like, even when I was five years old, that was the worst thing. I, I, I put it on my non-list. And so I, I can imagine if you told me that it was going to be two weeks, I think most people would be like, I can do that. If it told me it was going to be nine months, I think nine months of doing something that's painful. So as you guys think through how long it took you for searches and maybe how it changes between IC manager and executive, that'd be, that'd be interesting to get a sense of time and setting expectations. One thing that was helpful for me, you actually gave me this advice, Nikhil. Well, one, I started with coffee chats early for the broad. And so it was one conversation. And I told myself I had questions I would ask and I'd make a decision on that company upfront of if I wanted them to enter a funnel. And then what I did was I had almost like cohorts and I picked a date. And I was like, I want to make a decision by this date. And for me, it was, I think I gave it two months or two months out. And I told the companies that. I said, like, hey, I'm working backwards for making a decision on this date. I knew I didn't want just one company to end up there. That allowed me to have three, four, five that were coming through so I'd have some choices. And so I think you can do anything for a finite amount of time and with a, an end in sight. And so if you set a time frame and goal then I think it's more manageable. And also if you can, when you're going broad, make decisions quickly and early in the process, it, it can speed it up and make it more manageable. So it doesn't give you the answer on varying by level, but it was a great way for me to constrain the problem space. Yeah, it sounds a lot like a sales process. Anyways, what Annika described, I think is right. It's almost like you're describing hey, I'm in market and the train's leaving this station on this day. And that way, when companies are interested in talking with you, they have an understanding of when you're open to offer and when you might be not open to offer, which is a lot better than if they come to you with offer and you're like, well, I have two other companies. And then there's like, well, what's wrong with us? Why don't you do And then you end up across the table. And so I think that this like signaling is really helpful. It's creating essentially a forcing function. And the more senior you are, the more that actually is important. But I think even as an IC, that that's a really smart hygiene. And if it turns out that, and what will no doubt happen is that right that last month that you're looking to get offers, a new company that's interesting will come to you and say, hey, wouldn't you talk, you would love to talk to you. And you're like, oh my gosh, I'm like literally two weeks away or a day away from making a decision. And if you knew that the train's leaving the station, you can just signal, hey, the next train will leave. If I don't take an offer on this station, I will be at the next station. It just, this signaling and timing is good for everyone, including your own anxiety is, is what I sense. Shirley, what do you think about like the leveling and timing thing? Like how, do you think that the more senior we are, the more time it takes or how do you factor time into this sort of job search and how is it different from maybe when you started your career? Yeah, that's such an interesting question because 
I think I could answer it two ways. I think sometimes it may take a really lengthy amount of time, I think, for folks to be thoughtful and canvas, go broad, and then go narrow. And I think at other points in time, when you're senior, you might have a very clear picture of what you're looking for next. And it's really kind of a matter of, like Annika described, it just takes one. And if you happen to stumble upon that one, you can really make that decision quickly. So I think going back to what Annie highlighted earlier, it depends on where you are in the process, how clear you are on your own framework. And I think in a lot of cases, serendipity, like did you happen to stumble upon the company that kind of checked those boxes? I think if I think back to like earlier in my career, kind of at the IC level, I think the decision-making process was much quicker for me. I think I, I was focusing in on a very short list of growth areas that I was trying to learn and optimize for. And so I think it's a lot easier to make those decisions like, hey, I want to really excel in being a manager. I want to grow my managerial scope from a few heads to to like two to 10, for example, or I want to be able to manage multiple verticals with the company. I think having kind of those clear goals make it easier to, to make that transition. Whereas I think the more senior you are, if you're kind of more at the exec level, I think skill sets become a little bit more ambiguous, right? Like I think, how do you influence without direct lines of control? How do you operate at the executive level and bringing stakeholders along across organizations versus within your own EPD functions, for example? I think it, it becomes much harder to pinpoint, I think, those skill sets that you're you're trying to grow in. Yeah, and fit's so much more of the challenge. Like it's just Absolutely. So, so because fit's a challenge, you just have to take you might be super impressive, but you just don't fit to what the company needs. I mean, I think in my case, I always sort of assume that it's going to take six to 12 months to find another transition. And I think when I decided that I wanted to to look at big tech and I ended up getting an opportunity at Meta, I spent four months after they told me they wanted to make an offer looking at five different positions. And I looked at five different roles just because I knew that it was going to be a fit question. And I had an expectation of what my year one, year two looked like. And I looked at those opportunities and and how much like what that whether that would be a match. So that matching process is just harder as we get more senior, and as a result, it's it's just part of this process of of, of taking taking time. Let's switch over to just the actual mechanics of interviewing. I think a lot of the listeners are they're sort of like, okay, now I'm in the process of looking at companies, and I've got a list, and I've got interviews coming up in the next few weeks. How do I prep? It's like a, anything else. A lot of these are type A folks. They're like, what, where, where's the book that I can read? Or is there prep? Do you recommend prepping? Did you prep? Do you go through mock interviews? Do you go to classes? It's like if you search for tech interview, I'm sure that there's like 17 companies selling you products. Like, Do they work? What's your folks' feel on this? Maybe I'll start with, let's see, I, any of you should answer this one because I think all of you have different perspectives. I'll start with just just one tip. I think if you can come up with five to 10 anecdotes and stories over the course of your career that you can pull from and know them cold and use them regardless of what the question is, you'll be able to pull from this bank of stories. And it's not inauthentic. It's authentic. These are real stories. But I think really nailing down not just your overall story, but these anecdotes that show and demonstrate different skills. So regardless of what question you get asked, you can pull from sort of this bank 
of experiences and you're really comfortable telling each of those different experiences. So as you're thinking about mock interviews, I think one interesting way to do it is you sort of have that bank of answers or that bank of experiences you want to draw from. And then you sort of let the mock interviewer ask you anything and you kind of figure out how do I pull what experience to show and demonstrate whatever questions being asked. Just one tip in terms of how to ease the stress of where all the questions they could possibly ask me. Well, it doesn't really matter, right? You, you have your your sort of core set of things you're going to draw on to, to help highlight you as a candidate. And just to add to that, I mean, back to my analogy of like, this is a sales job, like you, you it, this is like pitching a product and you're the product. And so if you can build those repertoire of experiences and also really think about like, what's the value proposition? What, why, like, why are you compelling for, for this role? And even ahead of time, like talking to the recruiter who can give you a lot of information about what are the interviewers looking for? And even like, what are the things that might be a gap in your, when, when they look at your profile and what the company is looking for so that you can actually do the objection handling up front. And if you can think about like, these are the things that I really need to get across because this is what makes me really great as a as a leader. And then also like, these are the things I need to get across because these are the questions that my interviewers are going to have when they look at my, my profile and say, well, maybe this isn't the right fit. Then every time that you're answering a question, it's like, come back to that value proposition. Make sure that you're always like, use the stories, your, your bank of stories to really get across the points of why you're going to be really valuable and what and and showcasing why the objections that your interviewer might have should like they shouldn't be worried about it because you're going to be a great fit for it. This is selfish, but I like to go through the process with one or two companies early and even if I'm not super interested in them to practice my pitch. Like as a salesperson, it's your full-time job. You're practicing the pitch, you're calling, you're getting hung up on doing it can help practice and also give you the confidence for those jobs that you really want to get down the line. So I feel a little bad saying that to those four companies, but they don't you got to do what you got to do. They don't, they don't know that you're <laughs> yeah. practicing on them. It's all good. Tell them. What's your pet peeve? So, I mean, between maybe the five of us, we may have done a thousand interviews, maybe more. Like there's probably a long list of things that are on your like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe I'm in this moment. When someone's in an interview and they're doing something that just sort of ruffles your feathers, what's your pet peeves? What are the things that if the, the listeners out there and they're like about ready to interview with Shirley, make sure I don't do this. What, <laughs> what's on your list? Number one, if at the end of the interview, the person asks, what could I have done differently in this interview? What feedback do you have for me right now in the moment? I'm just literally, it could have been an amazing interview. I'm a no. It's just so awkward. It is so awkward. Like social awareness is very important at work. And I, it is an indication that, that they don't have much. How is this podcast going, Brianna? <laughs> <laughs> I think for me, you get to the end of, of them telling their story and you sort of go, I still don't understand what you did, how you did it, and what impact you had. And so I think advice for folks is in nailing your story is don't just tell me about the different companies you were at and the different roles you had. I want to understand what did you specifically do? How did you approach that work? And how did you do that work? And maybe most importantly, what was the impact? And so they leave an experience and I still go, did you drive up conversion by some percentage? Did you influence some number of deals? How, the more sort of data and impact showing that you can bring to your story. But it, I, the pet peeve for me is 
you just told me a lot of things, but I still can't wrap my head around what did you specifically impact and what were the results of your work? I think for me personally, product management is such a cross-functional role. You're working with people across the company. So my personal pet peeve is when a when a candidate just says, me, 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 I did this and doesn't mention really how they are. It takes a whole cross-functional team to really drive this impact. So I want to hear more about like not only what skill sets you bring, but also how you help others around you do their best work and really influence all the functions that are required for a great product launch. So make sure to speak to to the team. My pet peeve is when I ask the candidate if they have any questions and they don't have any questions for me. What do you like as a good question, Monica? Well, I want to see that people have done their research and they're truly curious. I think so much about pro- of product management is about curiosity. You have to be curious in understanding your customer. You have to be curious in working with engineering on possible solutions. And so what I want to see is like something where it's like, they truly want to learn something from me, whether it's about the company, the culture, the product, the strategy. They've done some homework and they're not just coming in and asking me basic questions that they can just go look up on the website. That real like curiosity and, and are you asking smart questions that I think is because of the nature of the role is so important to me. My biggest pet peeve is when someone's trying to run out the clock. I get a lot of that. <laughs> I get a lot of like people that struggle with conciseness because you know what happens is we're all asked to come in and effectively ask a series of questions on some area of competence. And that area of competence might be their leadership skills or their fit or their depth of experience on execution, whatever it might be. But you probably, every interviewer is going to have some angle and there's going to be a handful of questions that you want to get through. And you're like through question number one and there's like five minutes left. And the reason why there's five minutes left is the person is just not particularly concise. The stories they prepare to Annie's point are very, very impressive and highfalutin, but they're not particularly tight. So I can't quite grok it. So I'm asking for clarification. And now I'm in this really tough spot because I've only asked like one question. The candidate maybe, maybe wasn't a great question, but they're just like struggling. And so when I used to do this earlier, I used to ding them. I used to just say, look, I didn't get a lot of signal and I didn't think that was a particularly effective interview. Now what I do is I stop the interview. And it's it's not so much as the maybe this goes both ways to to be honest point. I actually just say, hey, we're about 10 minutes in and I'm I'm not able to get through a lot of the signal I'm looking for. So I would like you to make the following corrections in our cadence. And I it, it can come across a little bit arrogant, but as an interviewer, I'd rather say, here's what success looks like for me from a conversation style. That way I can at least ensure that you're not thinking that I want 99% of detail when in reality I want like 80% across five different areas. And as someone interviewing, I actually appreciate when people sometime during the interview check in with me, not on like, can you rate my performance and give me a sense of success and failure to Brianna's point, but more like, hey, is this the level of depth you're looking for? Or am I answering the question? I like that. Like, am I on the right target? And so they ensure that it's like, we're, it's a conversation, right? And you're getting value from both sides. And so I, I, I love that. So in product management in particular, but I think this happens in engineering, there's a growing trend in the last five years of people giving take home. And I get a lot of folks that 
come to me with some rants around like, how in the world am I supposed to do all these take-home problems? And they're making me do this work and they're not even paying me and all this great stuff. But at the same time, it is a great way to look at candidates next to each other. So maybe two questions here. Have you used or are you using take-home? And what's your advice on folks that are struggling around the depth and the time commitment and 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 all the obvious concerns around this, their sort of take-home challenges, especially when you're interviewing with multiple companies? I'm a 100% believer in the take-home case and have heard lots of feedback from candidates about it being unfairly time-consuming, hard for working parents. And I absolutely recognize what a time commitment it is. The reasons why I like it, though, are, I think, one... It really differentiates who's serious about the company. I do think for folks that are really interested in the company they're interviewing for and want to get a sense for the types of problems they're going to solve and how the leadership team would engage with them, they really enjoy the process. And so I think first and foremost, it's a great signal around the candidacy themselves. I think second, at the executive level, you're looking for candidates that really excel across so many different dimensions interpersonal skills, quantitative abilities, the ability to be concise, the ability to lead a room remotely in a lot of cases. And so it's really difficult to get signal across all these dimensions in just a standard interview process. And I think particularly at the leadership level, folks are very good talkers. They have their stories nailed. They have their playbook nailed. And so the case for me really kind of allows me to drill into the areas that I still don't have enough signal on. So the areas that I'm really sometimes surprised at candidates falling short are things like writing ability. Could they write a eight-page memo on a topic that's really quantitative and complex? Or are they only skilled at leading conversations with really high-level slides, for example? Or do they have the ability to really break down a problem in a remote environment and get ramped up when there's not a ton of documentations? Do they ask questions? Are they able to reach out to the right folks to, to get the answers they need? And so a lot of this really is unpacked for me with the case take home. And for me, I think it, it really shines a light on, hey, where does this candidate really excel? And is this the right person that we're looking for? So I've iterated on this a bunch. I like a take home for a lot of the reasons that Shirley outlined, but I've also seen it impact the funnel. And so I've tried a take home where the topic was on my product. Feedback on that is they felt like people were doing free work, which I appreciated and understood. I've done a take home on another product that people would know. And then I've also done a product review type presentation where people present their own work. The challenge with that one is that sometimes there's confidentiality concerns and people won't share it. However, I have landed on that third one as the one that I like the most. It's the easiest for people to prepare because they can pull slides or content, but you still get a lot of the benefits that Shirley outlined in terms of seeing their presentation, their written skills, how they talk about results and metrics. And if I hit the confidentiality concern, then I have a backup question and kind of problem space that's not related to their existing work that I use. And they're usually okay doing that because they said no to the less time consuming option. I have, I'm definitely more like in Brianna's camp. I actually don't like giving take-homes to most of the candidates that I'm hiring. 
I've found that the signal isn't necessarily strong enough and it's a big time commitment for the candidate. And I've tried lots of different things. And even at very senior levels, I have found that where the take-homes have been very valuable is when I can get them to talk about their own products. And whenever they try to get someone to talk about my product, it's very, very difficult because then you're judging people based on their experience in your industry and lots of other things that I don't end up finding are very strong signals. Whereas if you get them to have a discussion about their own product, that's way, way more valuable and the signal is much, much higher there. Yeah, I think that this is one of those areas where there there isn't a good answer. There isn't a standard answer. I think that if we didn't do any take-homes, and then the challenge is that the interview feedback just hard to compare. So you end up with lots and lots of bias in the interview. And then if you have everyone doing the exact same problem, but that problem does involve depth, the advantage of that is you get the detail, but then it can be challenging for folks that can't invest that time, but they may be great candidates. And then there's this funny middle ground where you could say, well, here's some standard easier to answer questions. And we've noticed this, that now those those questions appear on the internet. And so then it's like every candidate like just kind of goes in and prepares and then they show up and they've got their story and, and you don't get the signal. You just see how good they are at Google searches. And so that's like the sort of worst case scenario. I had one experience and I think that if I was to do this again and I was designing, I, I think one experience in the interview process that I really liked was they asked me to come in and it was for an executive role. And then they wrote down five questions that they gave me one hour to prep for. And they literally just said, you can bring your laptop in. And then they brought in a panel to interview me on those questions. They say, why don't you present your answers to these and run a conversation around these five questions? And their expectation was that you might get one, you might get two, time to answer one or two, you might get time to answer one or five. But it was a very interesting, like what decisions you made do you go deep? Do you go broad? Do you engage? Do you like actually build a slide deck in 30 minutes? Like what, what do you do was fascinating. But the advantage of that process is it was time boxed. So I literally had no opportunity to prep. So I couldn't be disadvantaged, but they took the one hour time period. So I've, I've wondered around, is there opportunities to give people the opportunity to do some of it without this super high level? Some people spend two hours, some people spend 20 hours, but really tough one. And I think our industry is sort of continuing to experiment there. The other one that comes up a lot is around references, best practices for references. Some companies ask, some companies don't, and do they just do back channel? Some companies actually don't like looking at references. They, they take another extreme and they don't want to use references at all. Maybe my question is for those people that are listening that are interviewing, less about the employers and more about the individuals, who should you pick? to be your references or how should you think about you know injecting your references into the process maybe Annie you have perspective on this one yeah i was going to start by sort of just high level you should just assume that you're being back channeled at all times right so the minute you enter into a job search the 
hiring manager and, and folks on the interview panel process are going to be looking at your LinkedIn network and see if they know folks in common. So I think just, just something to be aware of and, and perhaps even proactively reaching out to folks that used to be your managers, folks you, you used to manage or cross-functional stakeholders and making sure that they know that you're interviewing for this role and they might get pinged about it. So I think that's a first. I think when it then goes to actually formal references, I think you want to have really broad swath of folks. You want to see folks who've managed you. You want to see folks you've managed. You want to see folks who are your engineering counterparts, your design counterparts, marketing, sales. So I think make sure you have a really sort of broad perspective. And then I think make sure those references, you've had a chance to talk to them and help them understand how the interview process has gone, the things within your relationship that you might have highlighted as part of the interview process. I think I often get, I'm sure you all do, asks for reference checks and that you worked with the person and you know them, but it was perhaps several years ago. And so even re-remembering the the projects you worked on and and knowing the context around what you've told through the interview process that you want to make sure they're prepared to speak to. So make sure that your actual references are then prepared for the conversation as part of that as well. Do you ever ask the manager that you're going to be working for the company for references? for yourself to actually reference them? Has that, ever, has that ever come up in any of your discussions? I've never asked for it, but I always do it. You have to back channel the company you're going to work for and the people you're going to work for. I even have done customer interviews for the companies because I'm leading product. I want to know how customers feel. So I haven't ever asked it. The book, The Who... I think who, I think it's called who. I'll look it up after and see if that's the name. But they recommend when people are telling stories, like Annie talked about, if you're the person who wants references, actually ask for the specific person involved in one of those stories. So the problem with references and why some people don't use them is it's this extremely biased set of people, right? Like chances you get some real feedback from that are relatively low. And so if you instead pick the people based on the stories and you want to learn more about that story or something like that, it can take the bias out of it and not be this like secret back channel approach, which I thought was really interesting. I have not actually done that, but I I, th- I thought it was a good idea. Well, and then maybe a broader question is, let's say that we do get an offer and we're interviewing, and now maybe we have two or three. Our train is about ready to come into the station. We've got our two or three offers, and we've kind of started a back channel to determine what the culture is like or what the quality of the business is like. What are the other things that you'd want to ensure that you check out to help make a decision on should I take company A versus company B? Any any tips or wisdom around like determining whether a company's worth joining? I know it's a broad question, but it's like clearly comes up whenever you have choices. I do think this who your manager is and is is one of the most important things to your success in a role and your success at a company. And the manager is the person, you know, far more than the CEO, far more than the actual company itself, your manager is the one who's in control of the scope you have, the growth opportunities you have, the promotions you're going to get. And so you can join a great company with amazing CEO and have a bad manager and 
you will not succeed or you won't grow or you won't get promoted. So I think back channeling your manager is probably one of the most important things to do. I think the second is really, truly understanding the, the mechanics of the business. And if you can get the details on the financials and if you can understand what are the growth levers that, that really fuel the company and how is it doing, I think the hardest thing that happens is people join companies and then they learn, oh, there's a ton of headwinds that I didn't know about coming in. And now I'm just going to have to run against these headwinds for the next couple of years. And so regardless of how I do in my job, I'm up against an uphill battle. And so I think if you can find a way to both back channel the manager and then get them to give you enough financial information to understand the health of the business, I think those are probably the two most important pieces of, of, of ultimately making the pick more so even than the CEO or, or potentially even the overall culture, because so much of that comes down to who your manager is and how's the health of the overall. Yeah, tactically on the financial stuff beyond just understanding growth and what that expected is, asking what their churn is and why are customers churning, I have found is a very, very valuable question because you can understand why are customers unhappy with the product and is that something that you think is going to be a broader trend or is that that's going to be a real headwind for the business or is that or, you know, is churn not really a big issue at that stage? And I think that's especially important for private companies and growth stage companies because a lot of companies grow really fast and they get all these customers to sign up for the product, but then customers don't actually use the product and they end up churning out. And so that's that's one that I, I spend a lot of time on. I would actually expand that and say there's customer churn and then there's role churn. So yes. what almost all the roles that I've taken, there has been someone occupying that role and they no longer occupy that role. And it might be because of growth and they're splitting the opportunity or it might be because of competence or it might be because of fit. And the number one thing I like doing is to interview the person who no longer has the role. Because you'd, it's, it's a very reasonable ask. It's that, hey, you know, person Y has had this position and they no longer are looking at that. Are they still at the company? Many times they are. And then you're like, well, I'd love to be able to, as part of my my interview to the company, which I think is an important part of the process, especially for more senior folks. Let me interview, but let me understand what's the what was the reasons for the person who had my role before? Why did they not work out? And why is this not going to work? And perhaps whether I'm the right person or am I going to have the same fate is clearly the question. And if the company's like, well, we don't really feel comfortable in connecting, I think that's a big red flag because when you join, you're going to be in a situation. I think I know all my predecessors of all the roles I've had. And I've, I've actually maintained the relationship afterwards just to be able to get a sense of like, am I crazy or did, you know, this is happening? They're like, yeah, that happened to me too. And you're like, oh, that's interesting. And so you, you, that conversation I think is is really interesting to determine you know, whether someone's worth joining. I'm curious for this group, how much do you think a person can change? So I think if we do these back channels, say they might spend references that worked with a person five years ago all the way up to currently working with them. And maybe that's a big question that I, I grapple with is obviously folks grow in their role and they, they're able to continue getting better, but how much can a person change over time? And also like maybe what are some of the attributes that you think have low likelihood of evolving? Lack of self-awareness is very difficult to change. So if that's if that's the, the <laughs> issue, then like right. no amount of feedback or whatever, like that is a pretty big, pretty big challenge. 
what values they hold also are hard to change, but values tend to be very custom to companies. So some companies prefer outcomes to style. Some companies prefer style to outcomes, but ultimately that can be calibrated, but some people just fundamentally have a strong strong North Star on that. I think when people tell me that they can change or that they want to be coached, I put a fair amount of credence to the self-awareness comment. So I've been very successful at coaching people who come to me and say, I know that you are going to check my references. This is what they're going to say. I struggle with this and I'm looking for an unlock. Maybe this is the place. And I think that's a pretty good start. So, but I think you have to get them to signal it more on their own, not as part of like selling you is, is sort of what I've noted. Any other advice that you would give that goes maybe against conventional wisdom? It's kind of the, what's everyone believe that you don't believe? Mine is that your boss doesn't need to be your best friend. And so don't like, while you should be op- optimizing for having a great manager, that's someone that it should be someone that you respect whose values align with yours but they don't need to be the person that you want to have dinner with every night or you don't need to be in a place where you're completing each other's sentences that's not necessary if you find a great company and you find a boss you can respect that's way more important than having a boss that you want to hang out with every evening on that i think mike and my version of that which is, a, which is slightly counter, counter to some of the notes that Annie raised, which is I think as a manager, your manager matters to you. As an executive, I mean, just I would openly suggest that all four of you work for people who are not as strong as managers as yourselves. And that's a very shocking statement when you think about it, that almost all of us get to a stage where our managers are not just our best friends, but they're not even our future selves. They are not as strong in some of the things that you are strong at. And that that changes your calculation. Like, can this person teach me to be a better? And the answer is mostly no, (laughs) but that doesn't mean it's not a person to work for. But, you know, you can still need them because they have tenure and they know how the place operates or they know how to trust. There are things that you want your manager to do, but you do not necessarily want them to be your future self because there are, as you get better, there are few, far fewer future selves in the world. And you don't want to just look for companies that have that better, bigger version of yourself as your next job. Yeah. I think to that point, Nikhil, I feel like I've reported to the CEO who they're not spending their time managing. They're managing the business, not you as a person. And so I've gotten my inspiration from actually the cross-functional leaders in other departments. So I actually, if those are people you can learn from, I think that's a, a great way to learn different skills. And then also communities like this, where you can learn from peers that are in similar roles at other companies. So that wasn't an answer to your original question, but I think there's ways to get that support in learning, even if it's not your direct manager, as you get to more of an executive level. Well, I've, I've had so much fun today catching up with you on one of the most important topics that a lot of our listeners are interested in. I can't wait to, to, to regroup. I think for those of you listening, and if you are in market, not only for product management roles, but just generally you're in market for, for companies to look at, I think the four companies here are growing and they're fantastic. 
And I would love for you to, to go to their career pages, check out if there's an opportunity for you. And certainly, they have terrific head of products. And I think that they would love to, to, to see to you apply. I think the second thing is we pick questions from our backgrounds because we constantly talk to folks that are in transition. But many of you might have a specific question that we just didn't get to. And I would be really excited about hearing from you. We're going to circulate this on, on LinkedIn and, and, and Twitter and other places. We'll pull together a list of questions to maybe come back. And I'll ask this group to come back and talk a bit more about recruiting and transitions. And, and this is such a, as I said, a very nebulous and custom kind of conversation and there's no one size fits all. But I think the more that we we put out signal around how to make effective transitions, the better all of us will be and, and the better industries will be. So I couldn't be more delighted to have all four of you here. Thank you, Brianna, Shirley, Annie, Annika. Just I hope we have a great year together and, and I enjoy the, the community that we're building together as well. 